Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we consider the monster no human or God can resist. Have you ever heard the story of Psyche? Our word psychology comes from the Greek word psyche, but for the Greeks, psyche was soul. And Psyche was also a character in a very old story. In the story, Psyche is described as an incredibly beautiful woman. Her father, the king, had three daughters, and Psyche was the youngest. As beautiful as she was, she remained unmarried, despite many suitors. So the king decides to consult the oracle of Apollo for guidance. We've all heard of the Oracle of Apollo, but it's worth noticing that when we speak of the Oracle of Apollo, we're talking about the God of reason, and thus the Oracle is a paradoxical manifestation of reason and madness. That's no small thing. Anyway, the Oracle of Apollo tells Psyche's father that his daughter is destined to marry a monster whom no human or even a god can resist. Who is this monster that the oracle of reason spoke of? No one knows at the time of the oracle's council, but eventually in the story we come to find out that it is love. Love is the monster no human or God can ultimately resist. There are a great many details in this myth that are worthy of contemplation, and I recommend reading the story, but this detail is one we will linger with a bit today. In part, love is a monster because love will devour our ego and its limited and limiting reason and rationality. We're not talking about love as a surrender to irrationality, because that's just all part of reason itself. We are talking about love as something beyond the duality of the rational and the irrational. Love as a fundamental force of life that carries us from mere rationality and knowledge to wisdom and beauty. Of course, a monster is a terrifying unknown, and love wisdom or philosophy teaches us to lean into the unknown, indeed to leap into the inconceivable in order to fully open ourselves to love and to the mystery of life. What we call reason has to do with what we know. And what we know is very often what creates suffering for ourselves and others. That might seem strange, but it's the things that we really know that often cause us problems. And in certain philosophical traditions, the closest enemy to love is not actually hatred. The closest enemy to love is attachment while hatred is actually the closest enemy to knowledge. Being 
very reasonable about politics and economics, we can develop unconscious hatreds. Unconscious, perhaps, it's not rational to hate, or maybe because reason has to repress what's going on in our body and in our emotions. But in any case, we're talking about something unconscious and therefore not available for rational reflection. And these rational beliefs we have about politics, economics, and life in general can drive us toward rationalization. We're talking about archetypal energies here. We are lived by powers we pretend to understand. And very often we get hooked by something, certain ideas about reason, rationality, how the world should be, And the more tightly we hold on, the less room there is for flexibility in our thinking, the more likely it may be that we are hooked on a complex and may be driven by energies that are archetypal and unconscious. Archetypes and unconscious energies can seem a little confusing. Don't worry if it seems a little unclear. Let's go back to the story for a moment. In the story, Psyche falls in love with Eros, the god of love, and Eros falls in love with Psyche, the soul. She has to go through a big ordeal in order to really be with him, including accomplishing impossible tasks with the help of sentient beings, such as ants, an eagle, and a river and his reeds. And she also has to journey into the underworld. All of that in order to properly establish her love with Eros. This is partly why she might be depicted with butterfly wings and associated in general with the butterfly, a symbol of transformation, because her whole story involves transformational events and insights. The importance of this story could hardly be overstated. Our soul longs for love, which means it longs for beauty and wonder too, because the God of love is both beautiful and wondrous. In order for the soul to relate skillfully with love, in order for the soul to realize love, the soul must establish a relationship with nature, with the natural world and its beings, because the soul of the world is not separate from our own soul. Moreover, the soul must enter the underworld, must go under, enter the unknown, and finally enter the inconceivable. A transformation must occur in which we die to what we have been in order to become what we truly are. Thus we can see why the butterfly is one of the true spirit beings of love wisdom, one of Sophia's sacred totem animals. Sophia, of course, is the goddess of wisdom, and in the Western tradition, she is the feminine aspect of God, the living presence of divine wisdom that pervades all things. But we're talking about psyche. Today, we speak rather commonly about psychology, and it's still an important subject, but in many of its manifestations, it seems to have forgotten about the soul or covered it over, or minimized its meaning and significance. We haven't really honored as we should the lesson that the soul longs for love first and foremost, 
It longs for belonging. The soul longs for beauty and wonder. The soul must achieve intimacy with nature and the beings of nature. The soul must undergo an initiation into the unknown and the inconceivable. And the feeling of love flowing through us, the feeling of wonder and appreciation of beauty in the here and now, this itself is the heart of true joy and true well-being. It's what we most earnestly seek. We've forgotten it, perhaps, because soul does not drive a capitalist economy. Soul is what brings us beyond capitalism, beyond consumerism, beyond communism, beyond crooked politics, beyond war, beyond racism, beyond violence of every kind, beyond money and materialism. In short, beyond all our beliefs. Well, that puts us off the deep end, doesn't it? Remember, love is the monster that no human or God can resist. If our default God is money and materialism, love will devour it. If our default God is capitalism, love will overturn it. If our default God is liberalism, neoliberalism, conservatism, republicanism, Tea Partyism, or any other ism, love will tear it asunder. Whatever the ego clings to, forget about it. That means this story about psyche and eros, this myth about soul and love, suggests the soul could present us with new options for living our lives together in this living world. Once we let go of the stuff we're clinging to that keeps us at a distance from wisdom, love, and beauty, then wisdom, love, and beauty can start working through us. And they just might work magic and miracles. We can think of soul as a word that gestures a word that points us toward the source of all creativity and intelligence. And it has creativity and intelligence enough to give us a better vision of ourselves than the one we currently live, if we will hear it speak and trust its voice, trust the process of entering the chrysalis, entering the underworld, entering the unknown, and finally realizing the inconceivable. Philosophy or love wisdom has the task of putting us in touch with the soul. That's what wisdom-based coaching is about and what any philosophical or spiritual tradition is about, facilitating the practice and realization of the soul. We need not think of the soul in religious terms, thinking of it theistically or non-theistically we can understand it as a basic goodness within us, the basic spark or seed of wisdom, love, and beauty that gives rise to all our best thought, speech, and action. The realization of our soul is not something anyone can do for us, but there are many things that can help us along our way. Ideas, images, practices that can provide nourishment and aid. 
One thing that might help is to think of soul as the nature of mind. We have mind on the one hand and the nature of mind on the other. Mind is sorrowville, samsara, the cycle of confusion. The nature of mind is Sophia, wisdom. Sophia is the soul. Mind is all the thinking we do, all the stories we tell ourselves, all the worries and cravings, the self-criticism, the reactions, all the things that hook us, distracting us from what we are and what life is, what reality is, what the divine is, what wisdom, love, and beauty are. All the things that distract us from what our soul longs for. Soul is like a beautiful spaciousness. It's not a container, but the exuberant openness that allows the cosmos to arrive. Things can actually happen through the soul and in the soul. Things only happen in and through the soul. We can notice, for instance, how various things arise in our awareness. A cup of coffee arises in awareness. We sip it. We taste it. We taste the various aspects of it. We notice the heat, the bitterness, the acidity. Then it's gone. Cups of coffee don't stay around. Nothing does. There's a fluidity in life. You hear these words now because other words have gone. Everything continues to arise in our awareness without any stuckness. Imagine if you really were stuck. Imagine you kept hearing only the first word or even the first sound of this contemplation. Nothing but the first sound. No matter where you went or what you did, you just heard the first sound of today's contemplation. Something like the wah of welcome. Then imagine everything else became like that. Imagine you could see only one image. Your body was frozen in one pose. Your mind stuck on exactly one thought. Your life would fall apart. It couldn't function. Many of us experience various forms of falling apart because of the way we hold on to things. We hold on to old mental formations. We play the same old movies in our mind instead of touching what might actually open up spontaneously and creatively in, through, and as us in the moment, in the fluidity, in the spaciousness of the soul. Life depends on an unstuckness that is the essence of the soul. And isn't it a remarkable thing? Life depends on an unstuckness that is the essence of the soul. And isn't it remarkable that the thing love itself could not resist is the soul? Love could not resist the beauty of the soul and the determination of the soul. The soul, too, is a monster no ego can resist, not without grave suffering and even grave danger to ourselves and others, because we, of course, try to resist the soul all the time, and we inevitably 
suffer for it, as do others. Resisting the soul means resisting reality, resisting the flow of reality, resisting the love that wants to flow through us. Because the soul is the flowing relationality of all things, the dynamic love affair of all things. If we relax and allow ourselves to calm down and see more clearly, we begin to attune with this fluidity and this loving relationality. We begin to think, speak, and move in a more elegant and effective way. It takes time to get really good at, but we can get a taste of it in very short order. For that to happen, we have to rebel a bit, or maybe a lot, against Captain Clock and the anxious pace of fake living, the post-truth, post-sacred, post-nature culture landscape that we find ourselves in. It may seem that life has become very fast-paced, and there is always something happening. But serious reflection, I think, questions these happenings. Aren't we surrounded by fake happenings? A new movie release, a new SUV hits the market, a new corporate merger. Are these real happenings or a bunch of bread and circus? In the world of false happenings, things happen so fast that by the time we register them, they are already irrelevant. But what if this fast pace, what if this obsession with the latest trend is all a cover for the fact that nothing is really happening? Not from the perspective of the soul, anyway. The soul that longs for love and for the fluidity of life. The soul that is the spaciousness of life knows nothing is really happening. We're on a treadmill that goes faster and faster in a confected, post-happening, virtual landscape. Nothing actually happens, and we are only pretending to get somewhere. We'll explore some of that in more detail in another contemplation. For now, entertain the possibility that from our soul's perspective, Nothing actually happens. Worse yet, anything that appears to happen hinges totally on a set of precarious assumptions about what is real, assumptions the soul knows to be false. Only in the spaciousness of the soul and the soul's original thinking, only there can things actually happen, because only then do we participate in reality, which means participating in something genuine that transcends us rather than something superficial that hooks us. Superficial things can seem bigger than we are, and that can give them a semblance of meaningfulness, but real meaning is a matter of soul, and our real values and our real purpose in this life is what determines real meaning for us. Even though we've tried to handle it carefully, soul is a difficult word. 
it can make some people freak out, including professional philosophers, even though Socrates was always telling people to care for their soul, like it was his only message. Many non-professional philosophers, by which I mean all other human beings, have some feeling for the word soul. They have some appreciation for the word, maybe some affinity for the concept, but we're not always able to say exactly what we mean by it. And maybe we shouldn't know exactly what we mean by it, in the sense that maybe it's something we have to really enter into. If soul is crucial to a better way of knowing, a better way of creating, a better way of living and loving, then maybe we need to discover the meaning and, in a sense, also create it. Like all the most important words in philosophy, religion, and spirituality, it's important to keep an attitude of not knowing when it comes to a word like soul. We so often use words like wisdom, love, beauty, compassion, sacred, soul, knowledge, and on and on as if we really know what we mean. If we keep a more open heart and mind, we can allow greater intimacy to arise and we can make these words much more real in our lives. We could discover and create their meaning in and through our flesh and bones life, a life that transcends all intellectual concepts. In order to make it real, we would approach the soul with a heart and mind of not knowing. It's a very intimate thing. Since soul participates in the intimate meaning and real happening of life, soul empowers us to enjoy life, since life is so much more enjoyable when things are really happening. With stupid jobs, fake news, bogus democracy, rising inequality, boring committee meetings, and ongoing degradation of the world, nothing happens for us but more medicating, more repression, denial, unwellness, unhappiness, feeling adrift, feeling a sense of meaninglessness, feeling like there should be something more we should be doing with our lives. In a way, we might suggest that soul is the realization that nothing needs to happen at all. That, that is to say, nothing in the current sense of happening that our culture emphasizes. All of this busyness, all of these trends, all of the headlines, all of the noise is a bunch of nothing really happening. It seems like something's happening when we get that new car, that new account, that new client, that new job title, that new piece of jewelry, the new book deal, the new level of tenure or pay scale, that new coach or self-help program, the new romantic partner. There's a merger of spectacle, politics, economics, science and technology, epistemology, ethics, and more that makes it seem like fascinating things are happening. But we may also come to feel, gradually or suddenly, that these things are not real events. Our team won, our candidate got elected, our book finally came out. Is that really a big deal? Is that really what our life is about? Now, these things have real consequences, and our investment in them has real consequences. 
We buy into these things. The word investment there is deliberate because these events are products, which is part of why we try to make them real in order to get our money's worth, to get our energy's worth. And because we so desperately want something real to happen, we want meaning and belonging. Somewhere in us, we sense a lack of satisfaction or even an outright obvious suffering. And we worry that we might not be able to buy a happening that'll fix it, which makes us try all the harder. We can put a lot of energy into that team, into that title, into that candidate, into that corporation, into that event, into that self-help program. But these false happenings cannot resist the soul and they cannot resist love and our longing for love. Love and the soul make all these happenings look false. It's not at all easy to see that, and I'm not talking about really a complete rejection of everything that occurs in the culture. I'm talking about a certain perspective about a good bit of what's going on, something about the structure of the way things are happening. We are so hungry for meaning that we are desperate to find it. Recent studies indicate that men in the U.S. and Britain in particular so hunger for relevance that the strongest predictor of their happiness and their well-being is their job satisfaction. And what is the best predictor of job satisfaction? Whether or not they feel they are making an impact on their company's success. In other words, are they making things happen? These studies indicate that, at least for men, but I suspect for most of us, there's a need to feel we are using our unique talents in our career in a workplace that has a diverse ecology where we can freely interact with others, an ecology where our own thoughts and contributions are valued, and an ecology that makes us feel inspired. But how inspiring is it, really, sincerely, how inspiring is it to develop a new laptop keyboard or a new method for extracting oil or a new user interface for a software product. Now, I know there is a complicated story here. It's not easy to simplify it, and I don't want to oversimplify it. There is not a simple story to tell, I think. It's complex and nuanced. But we so want to feel our work is valuable, and we are so easily able to connect with people around us that we can fall into a mutual delusion that what we're doing truly aligns with what we claim to love when we talk about love in the most complete philosophical sense. We can do a bait and switch. The soul longs for love and we replace it with loving these things that are available to us rather than undergoing the kind of journey that Psyche had to go through to make herself able to skillfully relate with love. Let's put the matter 
in a way that might be a little more clear. We so love the world and so want to serve the world, serve something greater than ourselves, that we would do almost anything to get the feeling that we are accomplishing that. And if the paths our culture offers for accomplishing that are not grounded in wisdom, love, and beauty, we may well try and convince ourselves that we are nonetheless on a wise, loving, and beautiful path. If we don't have good philosophy to draw from, we will draw from what is available and rationalize it until it either sounds right, inevitable, or both. But the point is that we do this out of a longing, out of a desire to love this world and this life of ours, and to live a meaningful existence and realize our potential. It would be accurate to say we not only love the world, but we love ourselves. Not in any egotistical way, though we could get caught up in egotism about it. Rather, it's like loving our child, our partner, our puppy, our horse. We love them without any egotism, and we want to serve them, putting their happiness above our own. And thus their happiness makes us feel happy. Our soul is like that. Our soul loves this embodiment of ours with its unique gifts and all its apparent foibles and imperfections. We love the gifts we have to share or the gifts we have yet to discover. We long to discover and cultivate our gifts to their highest potential. We love the experience of life and we want to taste it with exquisite sensitivity. This is the love no human ego, no economy, no corporation, no material delusion or false god can ever resist, not fully. And so, if we look with a lot of tenderness for ourselves, a lot of tenderness for what really matters to us, tenderness for all this love in us, tenderness for the people we love and this world we love, and the sacredness or divinity or scientific miracle we claim to hold dear, we may see that most of the supposed happenings in our life amount to very little. It's mostly a distraction from the real cosmic happening of the world that we long to fall in love with and be in touch with, the cosmic happening of life that is itself inherently free, such that our engagement with it is already liberation, already a better way of knowing, creating, living, loving. Thankfully, we don't have to put our liberation off. We don't have to postpone love, joy, creativity, or gnosis, by which I mean true knowing. Wisdom, love, and beauty is just this happening of the cosmos, with, through, as our awakening to it. Soul can help us enter it, and bring it to fruition. So as we talk about soul, knowing, wisdom, love, and all the rest in order 
to orient us in a positive way for practice, we have to keep in touch with a spirit of not knowing that allows that practice to bring something wondrous to realization. As we continue to contemplate together, our inquiry may suggest to us that the soul itself is our context, the context of philosophy and of all our activity, and that we have denuded and degraded the soul. Validity, knowledge, and science all have roots in the soul, and sensing this could reorient our cultural and personal practices. We could have a revolution in what it means to be successful and a revitalization of the heart that allows us to create a much more meaningful life and a much more vibrant culture. The whole of our contemplation today is relevant to any consideration of philosophy, psychology, or wisdom-based coaching. The story of psyche is important for philosophers and psychologists and all coaches and people interested in self-help, people trying to grow, because of what it tells us about the psyche. Psychology and philosophy are both about the soul's journey. And one could easily suggest that the finest philosophers were extraordinary psychologists. Likewise, one might suggest that the finest psychologists have been rather skillful philosophers. The great psychologist Carl Jung wrote, I can hardly draw a veil over the fact that we psychotherapists ought really to be philosophers or philosophic doctors, or rather that we already are so, though we are unwilling to admit it because of the glaring contrast between our work and what passes for philosophy in the universities. In an interview, Jung said the following, quote, Man's soul is a complicated thing, and it takes sometimes half a lifetime to get somewhere in one's psychological development. You know, it is by no means always a matter of psychotherapy or treatment of neuroses. Psychology has also the aspect of a pedagogical method in the widest sense of the word. It is an education. It is something like antique philosophy, and not what we understand by a technique. It is something that fixes upon the whole of a human being and which challenges also the whole being of the patient, as well as the doctor." End quote. When I work with clients in an educational approach, we cannot escape the psyche, and we draw on philosophical traditions that are psychologically sophisticated. We also draw on contemporary psychology and neuroscience, but philosophy is love wisdom. It is a path of love, a path of joy. It is the path of the soul, the path of the psyche. Philosophy means the path of love and joy that not only leads us to liberation, but itself already is liberation. What do you think? What's the place of love in our culture? Isn't it funny that we 
only have one word for love, while even the Greeks had a variety of words such as eros, agape, and philia. We understand the difference between love and friendship, love of a child, love of a romantic partner, and love of life and of the world. Do those kinds of love share anything in common? And if so, what might it be? If you have any reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future episode. Until then, this is Nikos Patadakis, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.